Welcome to the Circular South Conversations, a podcast in which we build upon insights gathered and questions raised within the context of Circular South. Within the New South neighborhood of Antwerp in Belgium, the project aims to enable a more sustainable, more circular way of living among its inhabitants. By utilizing such things as smart technologies, behavioral nudging, and a blockchain reward system, the local community is supported to reduce their consumption patterns in terms of water, materials, and energy use, and drive down the generation of waste. Circular South is funded by the Urban Innovative Actions Program, an initiative of the European Union promoting pilot projects in the field of sustainable urban development. The project is led by the City of Antwerp and carried out in collaboration with project partners IMEC, Vito Energyville, Energy ID, EcoPower, Digipolis, Kingwinkel Antwerp, and Pantopicon. My name is Nick Barton and I'll be your host. Enjoy! So, Vinay, welcome. It's such an honor and a, and a pleasure to have you with us. It's good to be here. <laughs> well, introducing you to our audience is, is putting me in a bit of a crisis, but because what haven't you done? You've, you've designed shelters for refugees. You've designed simple critical infrastructure maps to assess people's resilience. Uh, you're now working, undoubtedly, among many other things, in, in what I consider at least to be one of the more compelling, more promising parts of the, the crypto space, linking the physical world we live in um, with the, the blockchain world of trustless smart contracts and more. Um, so in your broad range of activities, it seems that a lot of attention goes to creating solutions, infrastructure for a more sustainable and a more just world. So, um, And in that, what I really appreciate is that you don't ju just focus on the technology, but as much on the people and the context in which that technology eventually will sit when you invent and, and design those new pathways forward. Um, so... Let me ask you the very simple question. How would you introduce yourself in a few sentences to our listeners? Well, so I have to, um, because my career is very complicated, I kind of have to pick my introduction for the audience that I'm working with. <laughs> um, so in an urbanism context, the easiest way to understand my work is that I, am, uh, I have a 30-year project to build new cities to absorb climate refugee populations. So in 2002... Um, because I had gotten exposed to very, very, very smart academics in the climate space early, um, I came to the conclusion that we were basically going to be looking at several degrees of warming and hundreds of millions of climate refugees um, because there was almost no possibility that we would implement the necessary policy measures or invent the necessary technologies to stop that happening within the critical window. So uh, I probably became what most people would consider to be a kind of like worst case scenario climate doomer about 2002. Um, but I also knew how slow it is to develop like really fundamental new capability um, at a kind of technical, social, bureaucratic level. So I figured it would be 15 years uh, to get the technology to the point where we had kind of established a new paradigm and then another 15 years to get scale. So I set myself a 30-year project in 2002, and I would say I am maybe a little less than five years behind schedule. So these new cities, you know, the objective is to be able to rehouse hundreds of millions of people, um, to provide them with a, a high quality of life, which is not the same as saying a lot of money. So if you think of, for example, Kerala, Kerala is high quality of life, but quite poor. Um, mm -hmm. so we don't expect these cities to have a lot of wealth. 
We expect them to be built incredibly quickly, which means embracing new architectural principles like scale-free. Um, and we expect there to be a possibility of having to physically move these cities because if political or climatic factors change, you don't want to have to bulldoze the place or just leave it to rot. You want to be able to pack the buildings up, move them and the people to where they ought to be, and then reconstruct the city. Hmm. Um, and so all of the work that I'm doing is putting together components for those cities. Is, is it uh, because you feel like the city is the right scale to tackle some of these problems? Or would you say that some things are better tackled at the neighborhood level or at the national level or maybe nation, nation state or borders that don't really matter if we have to deal with these challenges or they should matter less? So when I started at the beginning of this, uh, I was very much in favor of the rural economy. So my kind mm. of thinking was you're going to take these folks, you're going to set them up with essentially farmsteads, Uh, and then they'll have, um, you know, a lot of their basic needs they'll be able to take care of directly from the land that they're on, which gives them some insulation from volatility in the global economy. Um, and that model made a lot of sense to me for a number of years. And then I began to realize that, you know, actually the position of the people that are growing most of their own food is incredibly exposed in a time of rapid global warming. Um, mm -hmm. So what happens if you move the climate refugees to these kind of farmsteads in some underpopulated area, and then the next thing that happens is that the rainfall in that place stops and now they're refugees again. So I think that it is probably safer for people to be able to restart their lives in an urban setting than in a rural setting. And then it's a question of, so what do these new cities do for a living? You know, mm -hmm. what is the economy that supports hundreds of millions of people moving from Uh, either existing urbanism or from rural areas directly into new cities. And, you know, these cities need business models. They need ways of existing. Um, so I've done a little thinking on that as well. And, you know, I'm just sort of piecing it together a piece at a time. Picking up on that, um, if we look at, at some of the stuff we ran into in the, in the Circular South project, is that we've realized pretty early on, uh, even though the things we were proposing in a, in a neighborhood at that time, at the moment, still under construction, uh, such as the installation of, of um, building integrated solar panels or even normal solar panels, et cetera, or battery infrastructure. Those are pretty much off-the-shelf technologies that you would expect um, project developers, architects, urbanists to consider before starting building. Mm. Uh, and, and although a lot of the, those neighborhoods and new neighborhoods are advertised as being more sustainable than their elder brothers and sisters that have been built in the, in the previous decades. It seems that still a lot of, not just convincing, but also um, enabling of these architects, these urbanists, et cetera, is necessary for even the most simple of solutions to integrate them as the default option, mm -hmm. uh, sustainable option. Um, what would you con consider levers or, or, or obstacles in this sense that, that we should overcome? Well, everything boils down to building codes in the end. You know, the government says you've got to build this, you can't build that. And the government often mandates incredibly stupid, outdating building practices. Mm -hmm. You know, as an example, right? Um, in America, they have this thing called the tiny house movement. Yes. And the tiny house movement, like if you want to talk about radically cutting the environmental footprint of Americans, tiny house is where it's at. You know, if you've got people moving into these tiny houses, And it's normal for young people in their sort of, you know, late teens, 20s, college students and so on to have tiny houses. Immediately, you're cutting an enormous chunk out of their environmental consumption. 
and you're training the population to consume less because they've just got no place to put their stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge environmental breakthrough and it's a regulatory hack because you know it starts out with these things being built on the back of trailers so they don't require um, building permits. But it's very clear that it's a real innovation because the American young are broke. These things are pretty cheap to build. Mm-hmm. And it's a heck of a lot more cool than being homeless. Absolutely. And needless to say, American regulators have started to freak out about this thing. And in a lot of jurisdictions, they're simply banning the damn things. So, you know, that is an example of the kind of pathological behavior of government that in an age of climate crisis where everybody agrees that we have terrible problems, when somebody starts to solve those problems, the first thing the government does is figure out how to shut them down. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that is not the uh, exception. That is the rule when we deal with government and climate. You know, if you start doing something that radically takes you out of economic participation in a way that is very good for the environment, you will very quickly hear from the government trying to force you back into the system. Yeah, also, also in this... Um in this project, it would realize that as you innovate and you explore new possibilities, you run into the the impossibilities or the incompatibilities with with some of the systems that that govern these solutions, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's whether that be the laws prohibiting neighbors to to share or to sell energy directly to one another, or it's municipal departments not collaborating or communicating as well as they could or should be, yeah. um, or privacy measures that that lock people out of the data they themselves generate no? and and should yeah. be able to benefit from. So yeah. there's a lot of this this legacy context, it seems, um, forming obstacles on on our way forward. Um, yeah, absolutely. Is, is there kind of like um, um, a top three of things that you feel like these should be like building codes you already mentioned uh, as one of the, the levers, perhaps, for to to move forward faster um, and have more impact? Um, are there other topics that you feel need addressing uh, rather sooner than later? So for me, the the key thing is that the notion of consumption is fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. Um, And the notion of consumption is something that was, you know, there was a phrase where it was decided that consumer would be how businesses refer to their customers, right? Their job was to consume the production that came out of the factories. And, you know, American culture after World War II had such enormous manufacturing capabilities they were having a hard time getting rid of the stuff they were making. And so mm-hmm. this idea of the consumer was invented because the consumer was literally the thing that was going to consume the production and then continue to do that. Um, so if, when we start talking about killing consumerism as a context, you know, what does that look like, right? And the answer to me is very simple. If you buy something, if you don't expect to resell it again for money, then the object is being consumed. Mm -hmm. If you do expect to resell it again for money, the object is invested. And moving into an environment where all of our consumption is replaced by investment, that to me is a model of the future in which we could have a very high standard of living. We could have a constant turnover of physical goods when we're bored with them or when we want to do something different. And we could do this without any substantial environmental footprint. And you say, what? And literally, right, you know, if you take some durable object like, a, you know, the electric drill is the one that people usually use or a hammer or something like that, you know, most of the time these tools are manufactured and then they sit unused for 99.95% of the year. So 
if we think of myself, if I think of myself as a consumer in that process, I have consumed the drill by buying it. And then I am uh, going to, you know, basically keep the drill in my house until the drill, you know, basically rots or more likely I move house and I can't be bothered to take it with me and it goes to the thrift store. And then it's going to be resold for 5 or 10% of its worth. I, I know that the drill is not going to simply burn out and stop working because, I mean, have you ever had anybody who had an electric drill that just wore out or broke? <laughs> right? Never have. They last, they last forever, like bicycles, right? Bicycles literally run until somebody steals them. So at that point, you know, we're in a position where we just don't have the market infrastructure to build a circular economy around those goods. I buy the drill, I use the drill, I sell the drill. I buy the bicycle, I use the bicycle, I sell the bicycle. If we are absolutely sure when we buy these things that their fate is to be resold, we're then incentivized to buy ones which are durable and buy ones which we will keep in good condition so that when they're resold, they're sold for the best possible value. And this shift from looking at these things as being consumables to looking at these things as being assets is much closer to their actual environmental status than the approach where we think of these things as being consumables. I, th I think that's probably one of the, the more fascinating ways of, of framing the economy part of the circular economy as you describe it, right? Um, it is this way of looking at it as an investment and, and dealing with it as such rather than a matter of consumption. Um, which brings to mind one of the, the encounters we had with uh, some of the elder inhabitants of the neighborhood that when they were um, exposed to a new service, basically, of one of our project partners that said, uh, we're going to set up a, a shared tool library where you can, you can come and get your drill if you want to drill a hole. And then you just bring it back and somebody else can use it. It's a very simple uh, sharing of the tools. Yeah. And then the, one of the ladies said, she looked at us and she said, I don't even need the drill. I just want somebody to drill it for me. Yeah. So it was kind of like <laughs> she she invented the, the, the next level of the service, basically. Um, but that was just that was just an anecdote. Um, Vinay, when when you look at the role of of technology in all of this, also in mm -hmm. constructing this infrastructure for this new way of this new economic underpinnings or the, the underpinnings of the economic system that would enable the circular economy to function as an economy around investments. Um, how would you frame the role of technology in this transition to a more sustainable or more circular society? Where do you see the most pressing needs and opportunities to make, uh, to make headway? So all of our problems are caused by technology. Um, you know, burning of coal is a technology. It's a two or 300 year old mm -hmm. technology. Burning of gas, it's a technology. Um, you know, even agriculture is a technology. So all of this stuff is happening within the context of technology regulation. We are attempting to regulate technology, and that includes regulating things like artificial intelligence so we don't wind up being enslaved by Facebook. Um, but it's also things like regulating coal and oil to make sure that we don't poison the planet and to completely destroy our climate stability. Um, and if we think of this as being like, okay, all of our problems are caused by technology and all of our problems are solved by technology, it's a little bit of a shame that government is so absolutely horribly incompetent at dealing with technology. Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't a government in the world, apart maybe from Singapore, 
um, which is good at technology. You could make an argument for the Chinese government in some cases, but for the most part, governments are very, very bad at tech. Um, and, you know, the corporations are very, very good at tech. So I think we have to start by saying, you know, are we sure that the governments have a role to play in solving these problems? Because the governments are terrible with technology, the problems are being caused by technology, maybe we're in a position where the governments simply have to order the corporations to fix it and then let them get on with it. Because I think if we wait for the governments to fix this stuff, it's going to be 2060 before the governments have done a damn thing. They're just terrible. They're just, even in the Netherlands, they're just useless. I think I think there's there's, there's two ways of, of um, in, in which we've encountered some of our or re-encountered some of the assumptions that the project had about the use of technology. And so for example, in in Circular South, the technologies such as smart meters and, and mobile apps they've been utilized in a way to to inform and eventually alter the behavior of uh, help people change their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, for example, they would receive a reminder or a challenge to switch on their washing machines only during the hours of the day in which most solar energy would be generated. Um, yeah. but, and, and various nudges like that had been implemented. But in retrospect, we've had quite a few discussions with both the users as well as project partners about the choice of leaving the final decision to people. Uh, from an awareness raising point of view, from a behavioral change point of view, it, it makes obvious sense. But from an impact point of view, some voices say that there are places where we might want to delegate the final decision even to technology. Uh, what's your stance in this? Uh, should technology merely support and inform our decisions, but leave us in control? Or should it be a comfort service almost, making the decisions automatically on our behalf uh, for the benefit of uh, individuals, communities, or the planet even? So in this, right, we have to, we have to get clear about the context from the beginning. The context that we're in is a context where we're basically in the middle of a genocide. Right? The, the, this yeah. has to be understood at the beginning. If we're talking about, you know, one and a half degrees of warming, you could make an argument that this is maybe manageable, the death toll won't be that large, you know, it's kind of like a continuation of normal history. If you're talking about you know, 2.8, 2.9 degrees of warming, which is mm -hmm. a recent estimate that I saw, at that point, we're talking genocide. We're talking tens, hundreds of millions of people will die as a direct result of the course of action that we're all taking together. The uninhabitable earth, as David Wallet-Wells wrote. Hmm? Right, right. So in that kind of condition where we're talking about maybe, you know, let's say 50 million deaths, you know, we're talking about an event that's going to kill the same number of people as the great dictators of the 20th century did. You know, that's pretty much what happened in Europe, what happened in Russia, what happened in China. It's that sort of level of death toll. Uh, only it's us that are doing the killing. Now, at that point, who gets to make the decision about how many people we kill by acting so irresponsibly that 50 million people die? Right? Who should be the entity that says, actually, you are not going to kill 50 million people, you're going to stop doing that right now? Mm -hmm. Whose job is it to set that limit on our behavior? Any ideas? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm asking a legit, you know, I'm asking a real question. There. I, don't, I don't have an easy answer for that question. <laughs> no, exactly. <That's, laughs> I guess most people would remain silent with a question like this. Uh, politicians first, probably. Right. Well, so if you think of this as, you know, okay, we're in the process of committing a genocide and maybe somebody should stop us. You know, <laughs> at, at yeah. that point, it becomes a little clearer what the stakes of the game are here, right? Exactly. 
um, oh, well, in that case, we should be, you know, everything should be done to prevent us committing this genocide. Yes, I agree. So what are we going to do? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to basically say all the oil, all the coal, all the natural gas, which is still in the ground, you're going to leave it there. And no, we are not going to write you a compensation check. Now, at that mm-hmm. point, you know, can you imagine the kind of world that we would be in if we tried to pass a law that said that? Right. Think of the level of craziness that would ensue. What do you mean in 18 months there's going to be no more gasoline and my car will be illegal to drive? What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's the law now. Why? Because the alternative is genocide. Is, is that for you one of the reasons why you would say... Um... Let's let's not wait for, for for people to make up their minds in in the the simplest of decisions they they ought to make, but let technology do it for them. What I'm talking about is we have to take this seriously, right? If the table stakes are genocide or no genocide, then at that point we have to consider this to be as simple as you're just not allowed to do this thing, which will kill other people. Right? I mean, you know, you have a very strong law against driving drunk in almost all countries, so. Driving drunk kills a few people here and there, right? Committing genocide by warming the climate to the point where the poor starve and boil. You know, surely if we actually run the numbers, you're more likely to kill somebody with your car through its lifetime of emissions than you are by driving it drunk. Clearly, something has to be done, right? And because the climate movement has not really communicated accurately that this is a genocide issue, you know, they talk about risk, they talk about inconvenience, they talk about flooded cities, they talk about this, that, and the next thing. They don't lay out the simple moral calculus of your lifetime of commuting 60 miles every day creates this much CO2, which contributes this much to warming, which is an event that will kill 50 million people. And then you can backtrack and you can measure how many people you killed effectively over the course of your lifetime. I saw somebody make a calculation of this. And it estimated that three Americans' worth of CO2 emissions over the course of their lifetimes was going to contribute to killing one-third of one person. That, that's, a, that's a telling metric, I would say. Yeah, It's a hell of metric. And, you know, I suspect that number is probably off by a factor of 10. Um, but even if it is, let's say, you know, not a third of a person, but 3% of a person, for every 30 Americans, their collective carbon emissions cause enough warming to cause one person to die... If you've got a 3% chance of killing somebody, we tell you not to do that. So what I'm suggesting here is that the paradigm is simply safety considerations in a sort of we don't howl out drunk driving sense. It's a very simple thing. So our carbon-intensive lifestyle is an unacceptable risk lifestyle for our own children and for poor people that live in vulnerable countries. And then once we've decided that we were not going to allow people to do this anymore, then we have to go and we have to solve all the rest of the problems to figure out how we're going to run a society that works this way. And that's a lot more work. But if we don't start with this very, very clear set of moral principles telling us what we are and aren't allowed to do, it's then extremely difficult for us to make the necessary changes because people really screech about the inconvenience in the same way that a lot of people that were used to driving home drunk from bars complained about the expense of having to get taxis. Yeah, it, it brings to mind, um, especially the, the comparison you make or, or the metric as you as you proposed it. Um, it. Some of the discussions that we've had with uh, people using uh, the mobile app in our case to look at their energy consumption, their water consumption, etc. Some people um, said to us, well, 
it doesn't really tell us much if we get presented with liters and, and gallons and kilowatts. Um, it's it's kind of like shrouded in mystery what these abstract metrics mean or, or imply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've, we've seen, of course, um, different types of, of technologies that, that okay, we're going to express it in the equivalent of trees planted or... Um, um, or deaths avoided, uh, etc. Um, so these abstractions, it's not just about the abstractions, but also how a lot of these natural resources or sacred elements, as some would argue would be a better term, um, are intimately linked. It's not, about, it's not just about abstracting them, clouding them. Uh, what is, in your opinion, what would deepen our understanding needed to, to facilitate a more appropriate or considerate and, and sustainable behavior. Is it is it in these these metrics, this change of metrics that we could embed in the technology as well? Or is it in education? Where do you see it? Besides legislation, of course. Oh, well, I mean, why besides legislation? Right. I mean, you know, persuading yeah. people not to drive drunk is only one part of making sure people don't drive drunk. Right. If you just have campaigns yeah. that ask people not to drive drunk, people will still drive drunk. If you throw them in jail and take away their cars, at that point, you have a certain amount of persuasion and a certain amount of coercion. And the Mm -hmm. question that we have to ask ourselves is, why do we allow our governments to commit genocide on our behalf? Yeah, but but you you would still have probably have people that, that that would not follow the law would have difficulties at least in the in the early phases of of, of that law in order to to change their behavior. Are there soft softer ways as, uh, alongside this that that could that that could work as well. That you say, okay, this is something that let's say that they can't make up their minds and the legislation doesn't really follow that path, which it clearly isn't doing at this moment. Um, is 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 there something that that you feel like this? There are other accelerants that we could uh, we could use. So think of this in the context of a war, right? You know, you have partisans who are you know kind of little gangs of people that are running around, you know, shooting people and blowing things up. You've got propagandists who are trying to persuade people that, you know, these guys are the bad guys and we mustn't submit, you know, all the rest of this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. all of that stuff, right, the bad guys in this situation, the oil companies, the gas companies, um, they have PR budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, They've got 50-year campaigns of organizing political influence to ensure that they will be permitted to do exactly what they like as they continue to prosecute this genocide. Why do we expect ordinary citizens to be able to resist institutions that are spending tens of billions of dollars a year to brainwash them into thinking that getting in their car is not destroying the future of their children? Why does all this load pile up on the individual to resist these huge corporate powers that are literally buying the governments through things like campaign finance? Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, I don't think it's still we start thinking in terms of things like climate Nuremberg trials that it becomes possible to actually put this context, uh, put this into context, right? The governments yep. which refuse to act on climate are going to wind up looking very much like the Nazi regime where people turned around and said we were just following orders. Because you can't commit a genocide and then tell everybody that it was inconvenient to change your climate transport policy. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's also what the what the younger generation of the Fridays for Future, etc., is it's exactly that picture that they're painting, right? Well, uh, I mean that looking back upon this, I mean, 
some people are, are thinking ahead of looking back upon it, while others say, well, we can still avoid maybe a situation like that by changing now rather than well, postponing I mean, it. And We may yeah. be able to avoid a lot of the problems by changing now, right? Yeah. There's, there's no denying that if we made radical change now, it would cause less problems later. But, you know, you've got to remember, regularly in Indian cities, it hits 50 Celsius in the summer now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about places that don't have, for example, good water distribution. So, you know, first round of colonialism, the uh, English extract something on the order of $45 trillion worth of wealth from India, right? Largely by forcing down prices of goods and not letting the Indian uh, the Indians set their own uh, fees for export. Um, so on the order of $45 trillion is stolen. That's about $30,000 per Indian. Um and, you know, you wonder why it's a poor country now. In 1000 AD, India was something like 40% of global GDP. Yep. Right. So then on top of that, the atmospheric commons, which allows agriculture to function globally, is something that the Western world has basically decided it owns and mm -hmm. mining the atmospheric commons to sustain lifestyles where, you know, average Americans are at 16 tons of emissions each. Um, Ten, top 10% 10 Americans are at 70 tons of emissions each, right? And by the way, the average Indian is at two tons of emissions and most of the population are well under one ton. So, you know, all of this massive hyperconsumption in the West, you know, is killing already a substantial number of people in India. And if things continue to get worse at the rate they're getting worse, you know, when that hits goes from 50 Celsius to 56 Celsius, everybody dies, right? You start having your proteins denatured, the body is unable to cool itself. You know, you're rapidly heading into the kind of situation where you could just wind up with entire cities where everybody that didn't have air conditioning died. Yeah, which was, which is something that even even countries like Canada um, could, could feel over summer and when they had this, this massive heat wave. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of like... I'm not sure whether it really stimulates the empathy, but still, it, well, it brought it closer to home uh, what the implications of it were. Yeah, I mean, 50 Celsius in Canada, 50 Celsius in Portland, these are places which should not be 50 Celsius. You know, yeah. And it really shouldn't be 50 Celsius in India, but people's idea of 50 Celsius in Canada is very different from their idea of 50 Celsius in India. Absolutely. So for us, particularly as Europeans, you know, we've seen Europe participate in genocide before. And I don't just mean the Holocaust, right? I mean European colonialism. Mm -hmm. How many times is Europe going to participate in genocide before Europe decides that genocide is no longer an acceptable way for it to behave? Well, the climate movement doesn't want to talk about genocide. And as a result, it's very hard to learn the political lessons of the two genocides that Europe has participated in. And if we think of climate in that kind of framework, I think Europe already has a lot of the ideological machinery to say no to genocide. Then it becomes a little easier to talk about changing the law and then using technology to support the change of law such that we can then have, um, you know, the necessary policy changes to make sure that we don't wind up committing this genocide. It's very hard for society in general to say that their ordinary everyday lifestyle is genocidal. You know, well, you know, I drive to work, I come home, I drive to work, I come home, you know, I don't have a lot of money, I've got kids, I've got responsibilities, you know, how am I supposed to shoulder the burden for this massive social change? And, you know, okay, fine, 
right? But that was exactly how people felt in England when they were, you know, just raping and pillaging in India and extracting literally trillions of dollars of wealth from a country that could not really afford it. You know, the folks in Manchester who were profiting directly from the enslavement of India, um, those people were, you know, strongly of the opinion that they had hard lives and they worked hard for their money. And, you know, like, where, how were they supposed to stop their participation in that system? Right? Yeah. Nobody is doing this stuff because the alternative is appealing. They're doing this stuff because they'd rather be the one holding the stick than the one that's getting hit with the stick. Uh, just to come back to um, some of the things that you've been um, working on uh, lately involving, for example, in the in the crypto space, uh, utilizing blockchain. I mean, we've used the blockchain as, as, the, um, as a, a part of the infrastructure of the Circular South project in terms of um, a way to handle the, the rewards, uh, hand out the rewards to people that um, basically contributed in a positive way to lower their consumption or to up their production of energy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, lower their, um, their their material footprint, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you take it quite a few steps further in your um, in your project at at, at Materium, for example, uh, where you try to link the physical world of goods um, to the blockchain. I think that it's it's a fascinating space, but some, a space that not a lot of people have peered into yet. Could could you open up that picture of what the vision behind? Uh, that space is? What would it enable? How would life in a neighborhood look different if it were built upon a system like Materium? So we start with the principle, right? The principle is we're not going to be committing genocide today. And that means that we have to understand whether or not the things that we are doing are part of that genocidal process or not. Right? Step one, we agree the principle, we're not going to kill other people today by being careless or stupid. Rules include not going to drive drunk, not going to sell heroin, not going to break into people's houses and punch them in the head and steal their money, right? Also, not going to drive an enormous gasoline-hogging car, eat a ton of meat, and, you know, heat my house to 200 degrees. You know, all, all of these things are in the same bucket of causality where we do something and the indirect effect is that somebody else is harmed. Right? Um, so... So if I'm looking at goods which have already been produced by somebody, right? let's say that I'm going to buy a, a piece of furniture that was made in the 1970s. Well, at this point, this thing in the 1970s, whatever emissions were emitted to create it, those are the responsibilities of the 14 previous owners that have dealt with this thing. As far as I'm concerned, this thing is historic. I'm not emitting any new climate um, emissions by buying it and moving it is going to be relatively negligible. It's five miles in a small van, right? At that point, we've got a huge amount of stuff in the economy where the damage is already done and we're not committing new damage by using that stuff. That's mm -hmm. our sort of free ride capital. Here's the space of objects which have no future damage associated with using them because we have a sort of notion of a cutoff point. We're not going to commit any new damage, but the damage which was already done will look. Here's the couch. Here's the mobile phone. Here's whatever it is. Right. So that begins to help us say, okay, this is the clean part of the economy. I have solar panels, right? Great. Here are your solar panels. Are they killing anybody? Well, there's a little bit of downstream toxicity, but the mortality is below an acceptable level. Fantastic. Um, all of this sort of stuff, right? <clears throat> 
by mapping out what the activities are that are harming a lot of people and what the activities are that are harming very few people, we start moving more and more naturally towards the activities which cause limited harm. You know, people are not inherently assholes. They're not going to go out there and deliberately harm people if they know that they're doing it for the most part. And, you know, we're not as dangerous and as desperate as our awful, awful ancestors that went out there and committed genocide because they thought they were entitled to it. You know, once we start saying, okay, we're going to be tracking this stuff, um, the second-hand economy becomes absolutely critical because it's the sinless, guilt-free economy. It's the economy where you're not doing any more damage to the earth by participating in it. And at that point, the things which are already manufactured where the damage is already done, you know, that stuff becomes valuable and precious by virtue of the fact that it does no new harm for existing. And then what happens very rapidly is because we're calculating the harm for the things that we are doing, you <clears throat> you got a very rapid push towards clean manufacturing. You get a push towards organic agriculture. You get a push towards very long life, very durable clothing, furniture. Consumer electronics, because they have such enormous consumption of water and rare earth element mining and the rest of this kind of stuff, these things become rare and precious and expensive but that means you also have to start designing laptops to last 20 years rather than three years. Yep. And all of this comes from correctly measuring the incentive, which is how much mortality is baked into this thing. And, you know, my suggestion is not that we directly expose that to consumers and have a little bank account that tells you how many people you killed this year. My suggestion is that government handles this stuff in the same way that it handles things like industrial health and safety. And it simply says, if this activity causes more than one death per 3,000 hours, you're not allowed to do it. You have to absolutely stop doing that. And this notion of a large-scale statistical modeling of safety practices in industrial settings, you have to wear a hard hat because if you don't wear a hard hat, the average number of deaths per hour on the job site rises to an unacceptable level. This is how we ought to approach things like how do you do cities, how do you do neighborhoods, how do you do urbanism? You want to live in a neighborhood that causes the fewest number of unnecessary deaths. So you make the cars drive slowly, you don't let them drive at all near the schools, you have pedestrian areas, you've got lots of bike parking, you've got fire services. These are the things that prevent people dying unnecessarily in your neighborhood. How quickly could we get someone to hospital if they you know, have an accident? Similarly, we don't run the neighborhood on coal power because that's going to you know, kill people on the other side of the world. It's going to cause Americans to lose their homes when they have forest fires, and it's going to cause our kids to live in a dirt world world where nothing grows and everything is expensive and they're terrified about their futures oh sure we don't want that kind of stuff in our neighborhood let's not do that so, so you basically push the uh the rules of the game uh and the moral incentive before everything else and you let the economic principle then uh, then carry it further or push it in the right direction right we we already have very, you know, lavish and complicated rules for industrial safety, for managing risks, mm -hmm. run an industrial process and we kill a bunch of people. It's like safety in factories, safety in neighborhoods and safety in factories. It's all safety. We calculate the risk per hour of activity and then we decide where the acceptable line is and we draw the line and we say anything past this is unacceptable. I mean, that's how factories, for example, are regulated right now, right? How much poisoning of the future is a person allowed to do before we decide they're poisoning the future too much? We make a number, and then we measure relative to that number, and then when you hit that number, you have to stop. It's like radiation exposure. 
you know, it's it's just a yeah. very pragmatic approach where we just use the same risk management machinery we use for industrial safety and we apply it to climate safety. So, th so that kind of reframing, uh, Vinay, is that um, I mean, you use you use a, a technological carrier in order to to to, to implement this. Uh, you you work on 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 blockchain technologies in this. Um, there's also this 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 premise, at least, of um, a lot of the distributed ledger technologies like the blockchains, uh, that it cuts out a lot of the the middleman procedures and where things can go wrong, and it speeds up decision making. We've seen it in um, also in the, in the in the ways on the cryptocurrency markets, for example, that. Um, People immediately, when they over leverage, uh, at a certain point, um, it, 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 uh, they're they're um, they're thrown off the they're thrown out of the of the market. So, um, do you see in this this the blockchain as a technological underlayer of implementing this type of system? Uh, that it um, that you can catch more flies. Um, so the way that I look at it is that we are basically preparing for climate law. We use the blockchain to document the facts about physical objects. And then when climate law is passed, we use that documentation to prove that these objects have such a low environmental footprint, you don't have to pay a new carbon tax on them. Obviously, climate left regulation is coming, right? It has to come. We're basically all dead if it doesn't come. And at that point, being able to document that your stuff has been made properly and their stuff is basically, you know, filthy and toxic, becomes a very good competitive advantage for manufacturers. But it's also the kind of thing that makes regulation possible. Hmm. So if the manufacturers turned around to be, oh, we can't possibly do any kind of, you know, climate stuff, we don't have any of the documentation, we don't know any of this stuff, no, 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 then <clears throat> at that point government is constrained in its ability to pass climate legislation because there is simply no machinery to implement legislation. So... What we're doing is we're building the data structure necessary for managing the data to prove the goods are either clean or dirty. The manufacturers of goods which are clean will use that information to prove their goods are clean. And the result of that is it makes it possible for government to then pass a law that says if you can't document your goods as clean, then they're dirty and you will pay the carbon tax. The only way out of paying the carbon tax is to basically be able to prove that your goods are exempt by virtue of not having emissions. So the way we're we're making it possible to regulate. That's that's an amazing uh, feature and and also an amazing uh, I would say proof of of thinking ahead uh, for when the legislation comes. Um, it also reminds me a bit of uh, not just uh, uh, Bruce Sterling says Spime's idea when he says, okay, what, what if objects could recount where they came from, uh, also from the basic material, so they could, they could basically lay out their complete life cycle. It, your solution actually takes it one step further in the sense that it also calculates the cost of that life cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it moves beyond the, 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 the material passport that, that some um, advocacy groups have been advocating for. Um, for example, one of the partners in our project, uh, Circuit, they run um, a, a, a shop of a secondhand goods, you could say, where people bring in stuff they no longer use and, and others come and get it. Mm -hmm. The pricing structure of that would become very different uh, utilizing this, a system as the one you propose from, from what it is now, right? You bet. Because it would take into account that whole cost of the life cycle rather than just the 
the value people associate it for for other reasons, aesthetic or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, right now we're sort of in a world where you know what's actually happening out there, right? People are running dirty, dangerous, horrific, damaging industrial processes. They're not paying any of the compensation necessary to kind of compensate the people that they're harming. And, you know, they're basically telling us that this is our problem because we buy their goods and services. Like, if you just think of this as being an industrial safety issue, there's no way that we let people do that if they run a factory. You know, if you run a factory and what it contaminates the environment with is, let's say, sulfur dioxide, right, mm -hmm. or, or some kind of carcinogen, right? We don't let people just run a factory that dumps carcinogens into the environment and then tell the people that are buying their goods that they're responsible for those carcinogens. We just don't let mm -hmm. people do that. Why is it any different for CO2? Right? If the number of people killed by carbon emissions and the number of people killed by, say, dioxin emissions, very similar numbers of people in a lot of cases. It, it, we just need to apply the existing laws and the existing frameworks that we have to deal with CO2 as just another industrial pollutant. And all the folks that are being, you know, involved in this stuff downstream, you know, you just want to know that the stuff that you're buying didn't dump dioxins into the environment in, in the process of its manufacture. Yeah, a principled approach like the one that you propose, it, it trickles both up and, and downstream, right? Um, a factory would also start weighing their options when they decide how to manufacture and what to manufacture differently on the basis of this different valuation of, um, of, of their end product or, or service that they're delivering, right? Because, you know, for them, it flows through to their suppliers. Hey, could I, could I please have this energy without these suppliers? You know, the ones that are doing all this carbon, could you just give me this product with uh, just with, from the clean energy? Yeah, yeah, we could totally do that. Could you give me some documentation so that I could show the people who are buying my products that, like, I built this thing with clean energy? Yeah, yeah, we could totally do that. Right? And so this sort of notion of, like, you can just continue to sort of work your way down the supply chain, getting transparency about whether people are doing damage on your behalf, how else could you do industrial regulation? Because if you don't do that, all that happens is that I open a subsidiary in, you know, uh, I don't know, Narnia. And in my Narnian facility, I do all the nasty dioxin producing crap. And then I send you the goods. Well, we've mm -hmm. got laws that prevent people doing that. Maybe we should consider applying them to CO2. Yeah. yeah it, it definitely lines up with, um, with with some of the things that also our project partners uh, uh, discussed uh, and also the some of the inhabitants when they said, well, listen, um, we can do all we, we like in order to seduce ourselves to change our behaviors, um, not just we as end consumers, but also people producing. But in the end, you don't just need the carrot, you also need the stick. Uh, so there needs to be a kind of automated mechanism almost uh, to put things in perspective, uh, to, to, to calculate in the price of something the, 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 the impact that it has on the environment mm -hmm. so that your logistical chain is calculated in the price. Um, yeah, one of the, one of the, the the discussions we had with uh, with uh, with an inhabitant not so long ago is that she said, "Well, what I find fascinating is that I really want to buy stuff without a lot of packaging, but in the end, I'm paying more." So it's another one of these situations in which the default option, the choice architecture, the pricing mechanism uh, as the choice architecture, basically, 
steers people in the direction we don't want them to go. Yeah, that's right. The existing system is literally insane. Right? People have lost their minds. That's how we wound up in this situation. This is also true, by the way, for mutually assured destruction. You know, the Americans and the Russians built nuclear stockpiles that were capable of destroying the world like 50 times over. And the entire world sort of went along with that. And we saw very, very little public outcry and public protest. Why did anybody think it was an acceptable thing to do to build enough nuclear weapons, not just to destroy one country, but to destroy all countries 20 times over, 50 times over? Why in God's name were they even allowed to get away with this? Why wasn't every country in the world that didn't have a nuclear bomb united in resistance to the idea that these countries were going to threaten the entire future of the species just because they had a dispute about how they were going to handle economics? You know, you people want free healthcare and centralized uh, econ economic planning. You people want people to buy their healthcare in a market and you want less centralized economic planning. And you're going to kill the world over this nonsense? What the hell is wrong with you people? So, mm -hmm. you know, that inability for us to basically respond rationally to people threatening our lives, that's sort of a problem, right? We didn't respond rationally when they threatened our lives with nuclear bombs, and now we're not responding rationally when they threaten our lives with this whole mismanagement of carbon. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we really need to think about this as like other people are threatening the lives of the poor, the people that are in exposed areas for storms, and our lives, they're threatening these things right now, by continuing to do things like pay huge subsidies to carbon producers. Right? I mean, it's not just yeah. that we're continuing to produce carbon, we're continuing to divert tax money to pay carbon producers. What, why? Could, could somebody explain this to me, please? I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding why we're doing this. And, you know, at some point, you just have to pass a threshold and say, look, the regime is corrupt. They're participating in a genocide. They're knowingly participating in a genocide. They're actively prosecuting that genocide by continuing to fund carbon production and refusing to pass laws to stop carbon production. Well, you know, who wants a government that's participating in a genocide? The answer is nobody. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon we will have to see the use of democratic power to simply remove, remove any government from you know any political party from power whose policies constitute economic or environmental genocide. You wouldn't vote for Nazis. If you're not going to vote for Nazis, why are you voting for oil producers? They're going to kill about the same number of people in the end. It's just a little slower to get started. And they don't need to build the camps. They just turn the world into a camp. Because if we get three degrees of warming, you're talking about hundreds of millions of people starving to death. I'm not kidding. I know it's a hell of a thing to say to a European, like, by the way, this is like the Holocaust. Let me tell you, as an Indian, it's like the Holocaust. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I, I share your outrage, and uh, but I also share the optimism with which you're you're trying to build uh, to build to build some solutions. So perhaps on a, on a closing note, Vinay, what would you say to anybody who, in the face of this disastrous uh, situation? Uh, still wants to to put in chip in their their two cents and and put in the effort. What what is it that keeps you up and running? What is it that uh, that that they should focus on in their endeavors? So the main thing that we have to do is we have to start using the term ecological genocide or economic genocide. 
you know, however you want to think about it. But we have to make this a genocide issue because Europeans understand that genocide is bad and they shouldn't participate in it. Oh, we don't want to be like them, you know. Once the climate discourse in Europe is we refuse to participate in a third European-led genocide, I don't think it will be that hard to get people to start applying pressure to their governments to get real change made on carbon emissions. It's just that nobody's been willing to put it in those kind of terms as a political stance. But once we put it to ordinary Europeans, like we would like it if we changed the way our societies operate so that we didn't participate in a third genocide. I know it's going to be a little inconvenient for you and we're going to try and make it less inconvenient if we can. I don't think it would be that hard to get the population moving on this. Mm -hmm. But the Greens have to stop acting as if this is minor lifestyle correction and have to start fighting with the passion of the partisans from World War II and saying, look, we're not going to live in a society that commits genocide. We're not going to permit that to happen. You must change. We all know the facts about climate change. We are all refusing to change. This is on us. And what is what is what is a, a kind of um, hopeful sign on your horizon that you see, like whether it's a project or whether it's a, an initiative that you see uh, around the world, whether it's, it's it's in Europe, in the States, in India, wherever. Um, that you say this is something that that gives me hope that we're on the right track or that we can that we can make headway. So the enormous decrease in the price of solar panels, like the solar panel price has gone down so much faster than anybody imagined it could possibly fall. The solar panels are practically free at this point. Every year they drop in price by another, I don't know, maybe 10 or even 20%. The prices are coming down incredibly fast. There have been a couple of hiccups with COVID, but the general stream of that trajectory is dramatically, dramatically cheaper year on year. So that gives us a very plausible path for switching over to a mostly solar economy. Incredible. And then the other thing is the Greta Thunberg approach to addressing climate change. You know, Greta Thunberg has basically said, okay, look, this is not about being nice to people and being reassuring. This is about making sure that the people that are doing these horrific crimes understand that we know that they're doing this. And we are pissed off. And in the long run, we will take their power away from them. And we will basically retire them out of politics. Very sorry, you sat on your hand for 15 years on climate. We're voting you out and you're never going to hold power again. You're gone, right? And that kind of rage from, you know, teenagers and people in their early 20s, like you are making it impossible for me to bear children safely because I don't want my kids to grow up in a world with three Celsius of warming where they have to basically catch rats if they want to eat anything that has protein in it. You know, it's not an unreasonable thing that, like, mm -hmm. young people would not want the world to be destroyed so that they and their children have to experience it in that broken form. So this combination of, you know, solar panels and wind getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, particularly solar panels, and young people beginning to say, look, you're not going to ruin my life because you want to drive an SUV. You people are just dangerous. Get out of a power now. Mm -hmm. I think those two factors together give us a decent chance of fixing this. You know, industrial safety is not cheap or easy, right? Industrial safety is a big, complicated speciality with lots of laws and lots of lawyers and lots of lawsuits and lots of prosecutions and big bureaucracies and tons of compliance costs for companies and all the rest of that stuff. And that's why we live in a society where we don't get cancer from, like, buying a new household cleaning product, right? 
it's you know it's just an industrial safety issue it is no longer safe to emit carbon into the environment as a result of running your industrial process and we're going to phase carbon out in the same way that we phased out dioxins you know like it's not like we don't have the policy machinery it's just people are unwilling to apply it well we need to get willing to apply it and then we will sort it out and it will be difficult and painful but it was always difficult and painful when we took a running industrial process and then banned it because it was poisonous you know, we shouldn't expect it to be easy, but it's not like we don't have experience in doing this. We've been cleaning up heavy industry for two hundred years. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely inspired by your your way of reframing it as as a safety and a, and a security issue, and and also in order to basically say to people, listen, we, as you mentioned, uh, we've been doing this for quite a lot of time. We have the mechanisms, we have the procedures. Let's just apply it to this other problem that we have as well. Um, so that that I think is is um, yeah. Thank you for reminding us that sometimes all this complexity can be boiled down to something really really simple. Eh? So some, uh, thank you for um, reframing it, and I'm I'm sure that our uh, our listeners will will walk away inspired uh, just as much as as I am uh, right now. So thank you, uh, Vinay. Splendid. Really good to meet you. Really good to talk. And uh, keep up the good work. You know.